The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Smoke and Chill Novelties Edition. It's Wednesday, May 16th, 2018. And on today's show, The Rider is the second feature film from the director Chloe Zhao. It follows a rodeo champion named Brady Blackburn, who's played by Brady Jandreau in a role mirroring his own life, whose injuries lead him to search for a new purpose outside the rodeo ring. It's been called one of the best films of the year so far. We will discuss it with Ingu Kang, who reviewed the film for Slate. Then, last week, at the same time he was appearing as host on Saturday Night Live, Donald Glover, whose musical alias is Childish Gambino, released a new song and video for the single This Is America. This video is disquieting, ambiguous, and deeply political. Is it satire, horror, or both? We'll discuss with Slate's Aisha Harris, who's written on the video for Slate. And finally, we were inspired by Gia Tolentino's recent piece in The New Yorker to discuss the rise of the jewel and the culture of vaping. We will be joined by Slate's browbeat intern and occasional jeweler, Lena Wilson. We may even blow a little fat cotton for you, dear listener. Can I just say that our producer wrote that phrase for me and I have no idea what he's talking about. But we'll do it, possibly in Slate Plus. Stephen Metcalf is unfortunately off this week and Julia Turner is feeling under the weather. So I'm joined by Slate's browbeat editor, Sam Adams. Hey, Sam. Hello. And in good smoke and chill novelties fashion, we have something of a Franken show where our third host will change with every segment depending on the topic. So let's jump right in. The Writer is the new film from Chloe Zhao. She is a Chinese-born director making her second feature film after Songs My Brother Taught Me. The Writer premiered last year at Cannes, where it won the prestigious Art Cinema Award. It's the story of a young rodeo champion who must find a new purpose in life after head injuries force him out of the ring. We're joined by Slate writer Ingu Kang in San Francisco. She reviewed the film for Slate. Hi, Ingu. Hi. Let's start off by listening to a clip from this film to capture the the particular mood that it has. If I know the writer, this clip is not going to have a lot of explicit dialogue, but it should give you a little bit of a sense of the the movie's ambiance. To set this up a bit, this is a scene where the main character, Brady, a rodeo champion recovering from a head injury, played by Brady Jandro, is working to train a horse. Sorry, I was too tight on you there. Just gotta let you trust me. Gotta quit trying to force you. Just trust me, bro. Don't, don't. <laughs> Stay with me. I hope for you. I hope for I know you're turning away from your buddies, and I know you don't want to do that. So as you can hear there, the main interaction is between a man and a wordless animal. That's true of a lot of scenes in this movie. In fact, I believe the very first image we see is an extreme close-up of the face of a horse, right? This really is, in some ways, about man and animal bonding, but also about human relationships. Um, Ingo, can you tell us a little bit about the background of this movie, how it came to be? Because it's an odd mix of, I mean, it's not a documentary at all, but it has many documentary elements in it, including a whole family playing essentially themselves. Uh, Yeah, who are all acting for the first time. Chloe Zhao has definitely sort of done her round of interviews, as has Brady Jandro, and they talk about how when she was filming her first movie, um, Songs My Brother Taught Me on the Lakota Reservation, she ran into Brady Jandro and tried to get uh, him to be the star of her next movie, but she couldn't really figure out what 
the story was supposed to be. And then it happened that he suffered this really traumatic accident, uh, I believe in the ring, um, where he essentially, you know, got a... I forget what exactly the injury is. It was some sort of, like, very serious skull injury as a result of being kicked by a horse. She decided to make a film about his recovery from that accident, essentially. Right. So it, this all takes place within the world of rodeo performers. Basically, everyone in the movie is either in the rodeo or aiming to be in the rodeo or related to someone who works in the rodeo. So it's it's this very, very tiny world. But when she was filming Brady, that was his actual injury. They didn't kind of let him recover and then do a fake head injury. They were actually like following him around as he was recovering. That's like a very brave and risky thing to do. When the film opens, the very first shot that you see of him are these like gigantic staples on the side of his head. And I think I heard in an interview that those were his actual staples. Um. <laughs> yeah. And the family was really, I mean, she must have, have established quite a relationship with the Jandro family because they let her in not only to Brady's recovery, but also to his sister's autism. His sister is a teenager who seems to be autistic enough that she doesn't go to school, that she is at home and is, you know, somewhat functional in her daily life, but is obviously someone that's going to need to be taken care of. And uh, and so that's also a real intimacy that the family allowed that could, I think, be perceived from the outside as exploitative, although to me as a viewer, it didn't feel that way. Right. It's yeah. interesting to me to think about, like, coming into this, how people are coming into this movie. And, I mean, if they've heard this, you know, podcast or read the reviews, they have some idea. But for me... You know, I like to go into movies. I saw this at uh, Toronto last year, so I, and I like to go in fairly cold. So I knew her previous film, and I knew there was some overlap, but I didn't know very much specific about it before I watched it. And that shot of him in the bathroom where you see those, I think one review referred to it as kind of a railroad track on his head, this really long line of, of surgical staples in his skull. I mean, that's really the moment for me when you know that you're dealing with with something real there. And I don't know... You know, specifically, I mean, one of the kind of running uh, tensions in the movie, is, it's about him, his character suffering this accident um, and then wanting to to get back in the ring. And one of the, the tensions is just like, are his hands going to work? You know, there, there's this there's this sort of muscle tremors where his hands are just clenching up and he can't even hold a rope to, you know, to, to steer the horse or, or stay on it. And um, just whether or not he's going to have sufficient control of his hands to be able to do that is one of the kind of things that you keep wondering in the film. And I don't know sort of specifically like if every tremor that they capture is an actual tremor, if it's just act like when you had that problem or this is just a problem that injuries that that people with injuries like this have. So just act that out. You know, I think obviously, I mean, he is acting, he's playing a character, um, but there is that, you know, tension in a lot of shots, you know, just how, you know, how much reality are we seeing in any given moment? Right. I mean, really, if you think that this is a Western, if you go into this movie in any way expecting it to sort of be swashbuckling um, horseback technique and lots of adventure, you would be severely disappointed because it's almost plotless, as you say in your, your review, Ingu, and uh, and is really as much about bodily trauma and mental trauma and recovery therefrom as it is about any of the, the exploits in the ring. Um, not only Brady's recovery, but that of Lane, his friend who he visits over and over again in the hospital and offers a kind of um, a kind of impromptu physical therapy to. You know, one of the ways this story came about, as you mentioned, Ingu, she, Chloe Zhao had this 
Radish Andro and she wanted to make a movie about him, but she didn't know what the story was. And then he suffered this accident and was determined to, you know, his doctor said, OK, like that's that's it for you and horses. And he went essentially right back to training them, which is something you see him effectively really doing in the film. So it was his determination to, you know, at least kind of get back to doing what he loved and what he was good at with with horses in spite of the danger that his injury caused is really what kind of gave her the the kernel of the what became the character in this movie. And there's a real ambiguity in the viewer's mind about what he should be doing and what he shouldn't be doing, right? I mean, sometimes it seems clearly signaled that what he's doing is self-destructive and unwise when he gets back on a horse almost immediately after having been told not to do it. Um, and there's really this this tension throughout the movie as to exactly how self-destructive this character is going to be. And I, what I liked about this movie in many ways is that it, it surprises you on that front. It doesn't always, it doesn't sort of create this ramped up suspense of he's going to become more and more and more self-destructive and then this awful thing is going to happen. There really is a sense from scene to scene that he and you don't quite know what what choice he's going to make. Well, and for me, one of the things I found myself wrestling with watching the movie is, was kind of what do I want? For this guy, you know, I've seen it parsed in terms of the movie, parsed in terms of toxic masculinity. That he's a man who kind of wants to get, gets back to doing his manly things, and I don't, I don't really think it's that for me. I think it's about identity and accomplishment, and this is, you know, this is what he was raised to do. This is the thing that he's good at, and he wants to get back to doing that. And but it poses this really life and death risk for him. It's also the only thing he can do to to earn money in a in a environment where there really aren't any other options for him and the movie makes that makes that very clear as well as it does the physical reality of his injuries and for me it's you know what I mean what do I want you know what do I want this guy to do how do I want this movie to turn out am I am I rooting for him and if so like what am I rooting for him to do and I think that's just a really interesting place to be with with regard to this fictional story that you're invested in is just, you you know, you don't know where you want it to go. So then it's hard to know, you know, when the movie goes one way or another. It, I mean, you're always kind of reevaluating your feelings and the way you would sort of traditionally respond to a movie like this, something that was in a more kind of canonical, you know, Western or, or masculine vein. Um, and you're kind of fencing with your relationship to that whole genre and what you would normally want the objectives to be. Right. And I, that, that to me makes it an infinitely better film and brings it more complexity. I had been hearing about this ever since it got that rapturous reception at Cannes, that, that it was a deconstruction of toxic masculinity. Exactly that. And so as a result, I think I walked in expecting something more extreme, you know, that there were going to be more scenes of like fight clubby type, you know, men doing horrible things to each other to prove something. And it's a much gentler and quieter and more uh, more ambivalent movie than that. I think it's also worth noting, though, that even though it's a very much an individual movie um, about, like, the crossroads that this one character finds himself in, it's also a really great study of the kind of masculinity that he grows up in. Um, he There's a really interesting, great scene where Brady is hanging out with some friends, and they're at a campfire, um, and this is sort of like his uh, first big night out with the guys. And uh, basically, they're all rodeo writers. And they're all telling him, like, so, like, when are you coming back? And he keeps telling them, um, you know, like, I think I need some time for myself to figure out, like, how my body works now, essentially. And they're not really having it. And then there's, uh, I, I think one of them makes a joke about, like, how... He's had something like 
eight concussions. So like by NFL standards, he should be dead. And you can see that he feels quite trapped in this like one vision of masculinity that he has set up for himself. Um, not that that's the only version out there in this town, but it's the only sort of respectable one in his worldview. Um, and I think that's really worth noting because you almost uh, have this, like, lost generation of, like, doomed boys in a certain sense um, if all of them end up following Brady's path. Right, and then it has also to do with you know, kind of the, the promise of the West. And I know it's, I mean, I've, I've seen people who have gotten all the way through this movie and not realize that it was set on a Lakota Sioux reservation, but that's clearly a, a kind of potent subtext to the film as well, that there was, you know, kind of, this is the one thing you can do. You can, you know, you, you know how to ride horses, you can do that for a living. And then that's kind of being taken away from them as well. I mean, it, it's, you get the sense that, you know, that rodeo culture is kind of, you know, dying or or being kind of corporatized as well, but also that just participating in it pauses is just participating. It is they're really kind of trading their their lives and breaking their bodies just to be able to to earn a living. Right. So in that sense, although it's, this is very, very under the radar and not at all signposted, it's kind of a movie about capitalism and class, right? I mean, it could be regarded as this sort of regional document of a disappearing culture. But what Brady is struggling with, which, as you say, is is simply trying to fight his way through a system where he's given very, very few resources to, to get out, is something that I think lots of people can identify with from many, many cultures. One question I wrestle with with this movie, and it's true also of... Um, Lead on Pete, which is kind of the other, you know, boy and his horse movie that's doing the rounds um, this this uh, spring, I guess, is... Directed by Andrew Hay. Yes, directed okay. by Andrew Hay, which is also uh, kind of wonderful. They're both movies about kind of horses and young men. They're about kind of working class life. And they're movies that are, I think, you know, stylistically appealing to and, and distribution-wise, you know, going through art houses that are really kind of essentially only going out to kind of middle and upper middle class audiences. And I wonder... A little bit about, uh, you know, just how it feels to kind of watch something like this that is about, you know, it's a really kind of, you know, poetic and beautiful depiction of working class life. But I, I kind of wonder if, you know, it is any appeal to the, you know, the kinds of people who are depicted in it or if it's only something for people who don't come from that background to then look at it and go, oh, isn't it beautiful and poetic? I don't know who you send to this movie exactly. I came out of it feeling like I'm really glad I saw that. It accomplishes what it sets out to do basically perfectly. I think there you might accuse it of being slightly underambitious in what it sets out to do and that any slice of this movie, any 15-minute slice that you take out would resemble any other slice. There's not really a lot of um, structure or build, and that is obviously deliberate on the director's part. Um, but I would certainly send people to it if you just... If you're if you're interested in any of the following westerns, horses, masculinity, non-professional acting, which I think is something we haven't really talked about, but it's something this movie is really stunning at, is is using that very understated, naturalistic acting style that flows from a person's own story and own history, which is not something that it's it's easy easy for a director to do, especially from someone outside that community. And I think Chloe Zhang pulls that off really tremendously well, as as do all the performers. All right. The movie, again, is The Writer. It's in uh, selected art house theaters near you. Perhaps keep an eye out for it uh, there and uh, soon, I hope, in, in streaming venues. I think it, it may be one of the most interesting movies of the year so far that I've seen. Certainly one of the most unusual. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Well, Ingu, thank you so much for waking up early in your neck of the woods to talk <laughs> about The Writer with us. Uh, thanks for having me. 
All right, before we move on to our second segment, let us do the business. Sam, what have we got this week? Uh, First, a reminder about our secret summer getaway on June 2nd at a super secret location in Rensselaer County, New York at 3 p.m. on Saturday, June 2nd. Go to slate.com slash live to buy tickets. Ticket holders will learn of the location a few days before the event, which once again is super secret. Even to Julia and I, by the way, we still don't know where we're going. Yes. We promise it will be easily accessible by car with parking on site. Again, slate.com slash live for the show at 3 p.m. on Saturday, June 2nd at the super secret location. Thanks, Sam. In Slate Plus today, we have an extension of our third segment, which is going to be on juuling, the uh, the new vape technology that's catching on among teens. So after we talk about the abstraction of juuling, we're going to get into the praxis of juuling for our Slate Plus segment. We actually have a box of how many? Four juul, what do you call them? Pods? Cartridges? Yes. And, uh, and a device to smoke them with. So we're going to get hopped up on some weird mango smelling vapors if you want to stick around for that. Uh, To hear segments like that (laughs) and to get our ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, the membership program for the magazine, which is a great way to support Slate's journalism. For $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest. You can buy us jewel pods and support your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, of course, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows. So to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. Okay, on with the show. The single and video for This Is America came out over a week ago, and it still feels like we're just coming to terms with it. The song is by Childish Gambino, who is the alter ego of the actor Donald Glover, formerly of Community, now the creator of Atlanta, and and set to co-star in the upcoming Star Wars film Solo. It features a tracking shot that follows Glover dancing around a warehouse while committing gleeful acts of violence, with even more violence playing out in the background. This video is a study in contrast about the state of police brutality and the narcotizing effects of pop culture on our ability to process that brutality. We're joined today by Slate's Aisha Harris, who wrote on the video to discuss it. But first, if you haven't seen the video yet, I highly encourage you to pause the show right now and watch it. It's just four minutes long. In the meantime, let's listen to a bit of the song. How are we supposed to relate to this protagonist who at once seems to be this racist caricature and is also going around killing other black people? Like, what does he represent? What is what's his motivation? I mean, interestingly, one of the things uh, Hiro Mirai, who is the director of the video and is a frequent collaborator with Childish Gambino slash Donald Glover. He directs a lot of Atlanta episodes. He's directed a lot of uh, uh, Atlanta episodes. He's directed a lot of Childish Gambino's previous music videos that are also dark, although none of them are nearly as dark as this one. Um, And Hiro Mirai kind of broke it down, I think, in the New York Times recently, sort of some of the influences. And one of the influences, he said, for Childish Gambino's face, uh, his facial expressions, was Jim Carrey's The Mask, which is really interesting because... I mean, I haven't thought about that movie in decades, um, but for them to kind of go to that well, and I haven't, you know, I think it's interesting. I feel like that movie in itself, I haven't seen it in a very long time, but in many ways, the the elasticity and the idea of this mask uh, 
in the movie kind of taking on a, a, a character of its own, I think could be read. I'm sure maybe some academics have read into this already, but it could be read in, in a sense as a sort of minstrelsy um, or have its roots in minstrelsy. So I think, you know, I feel like so much of this, even though it comes down to the mask, it also comes back to in some ways you know, years and hundreds of years of, of blackface and, and minstrelsy and, right. and, and slavery. And, right. And other, I, to me, other filmic conventions of, of racism, for example, the kind of pop-eyed fear, right, of like a step and fetch it type character. This was always like a common expression on the face of some subordinate black character in old Hollywood movies, right? That like you're terrified and your eyes are kind of bulging. And Donald Glover does that again and again as well. I mean, what's fascinating to me about what he's doing, I mean, with his, his you know, movement, uh, you know, his body, but particularly his, his face in that opening shot you're talking about is is um, he he shifts you know kind of every I guess every every measure you know every couple of beats he kind of is shifting into it like a different kind of dance taking on a, a different facial expression and I'll kind of pick one up and then drop it and put it back on and even when he does this kind of like sort of you know like bug-eyed caricature it's like one eye bugs out and the other half of his face doesn't and that sort of like Jim Carrey in the mask where it's like you're you know or it's almost like he's like having a stroke or something and it really for me that the whole video and then the song um that's harder to find in the song i think if you haven't seen the video um but is really just it's it's super dialectical i mean there's there's always things going in two different directions and once you said this in the in the piece you you wrote about it um aisha where he's kind of you know every in it, every image is kind of you know contradicting or going off in a different direction from the one before it and even that just that opening clip we heard especially if you're listening to it on headphones it, you know it's like there are reminded me of like when I was a college radio DJ and you would be like kind of queuing up another song in your left ear while the what was on the air was playing in your right. It's like having two things going at the same time. I mean, and and it kind of resolves. But there is that like there's that kind of African guitar in one ear and this sort of the trap beat in the other. And they really don't quite mesh. And then the song will kind of goes trap for a while and there's the gospel choir comes in that goes back to rap. And then there's more more kind of acoustic guitar at the end. But it's really um you know, it seems to me that there's a real kind of battle going on in this about, um, I don't know who Donald Glover, I guess even whether it's Donald Glover or Childish Gambino and who either of those people is and who people want them to be and who they want them to be. And that seems to change almost almost one beat to the next as you're watching this. Yeah. I mean, none of the images really stick with you. I mean, they do in your mind, maybe, but they don't stick with you for that long because as soon as something's happened, something else is happening. Um, even just the casual way he shoots down the gospel choir, it's like he just turns around, does it, and then he's on like to the next location in this this like continuous sort of uh, – it's, it's definitely not all on camera, uh, but it, it feels just very um, seamless even as this this herky jerky stuff is yeah, all happening at yeah. the same time. I mean, I think it's worth mentioning that it's just it's very directed. I mean, in a in a beautiful way, I think. But Hero Mirai's the camera placement and the camera movement is really important. And even though, as you say, it's not all one take, there it's it's filmed in such a seamless and swooping kind of way that it feels like just a very few takes sewn together. Um, which of course also emphasizes the the performance virtuosity of Donald Glover. Like he's not being cut away from, he's really doing it, you know? And so he's doing all those mood shifts and mood switches throughout. It's, 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 I mean, just as a piece of performance and of like virtuosic technical directing, it's it's kind of incredible. Yeah. And it is, it's interesting the way in which he's almost always foregrounded in the video in that it took me and I know other people commented on this as well. So it wasn't just me. It, It seemed very clear that the whole point was like, 
part of what he's trying to say, I think, is is we um, the entertainment is sort of distracting from the bigger things because when he's dancing and when he's dancing with those kids who are also just like they're great dance. Like I always want to watch black kids dancing like that. It, it's it's kind of it's fun. They they look like they're having fun, and then in the background, there's people shooting each other. There's mini fires happening on like. There, there's a white horse and some people would try to interpret what that ho- white horse means when it's running in the back um, but th- there's just so much going on and, and it might take you more than one it's definitely going to take you more than one to like re- take in everything that's happening yeah you have to have a viewing where you don't watch Donald Glover or the chorus of dancing kids in school uniforms at all because they're too infectious and they're trying to make you watch them which is part of of course what the video is about is right. you know sort of entertainment as a distraction and so if you try to have one viewing where you just block that out and look at the background you'll see all kinds of crazy stuff cars are burning and then there's a a, a great shot of some kids in the rafters filming the whole thing on their cell phones I mean I think and you write about this too there's a complicated way in which this is an indictment this isn't just about black white racism in fact it's not until the end that you see a significant number of white people where there's this crowd this kind of mob of white people that's chasing Donald Glover at the very very last shot but most of the time it seems to be a dialogue among different groups of black people right and uh, as Doreen St. Felix wrote in the New Yorker there's there's really a sense of a uh, it's 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 really difficult to to find anyone in this in this video who's doing anything admirable or heroic, right? I mean, it's not just that Donald Glover is going around blowing people away. It's sort of that everyone is in some way involved in either the industry of entertainment and distraction or of kind of explo- exploitation, like filming it or, you know, out and out violence and, and mob violence in the background. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation among black people on black Twitter and elsewhere about what exactly that means. Like, is he telling us is he doing sort of his version of the pound cake speech or like the pull up your pants yeah like like stop paying it like we're distracted you all are too busy filming stuff on your your phones and all that stuff i think it's more complicated than that i think because if if that was really what he was saying i don't think he would be making a show like atlanta like his he's he's an entertainer that's what he does first and foremost um i see himself as sort of including him in that but also himself in not getting too distracted about these things. Right. I mean, there's self-loathing galore built into this, right? Yeah. I mean, as there is into most of what Donald Glover creates these days. Right. But also, like, I think on the blog Very Smart Brothers, um, which is part of The Root, uh, there is a really interesting statement made about the video and, and Donald Glover's place right now and how it's quite possible no black person has ever occupied a space quite like he has, where he is... In everything from the new Star Wars movie, he was in the Spider-Man movie for like a a scene or two. Um, He has this hit show that is beloved by both black and white people. And he is also now like his he now has a number one song like he has his first number one. Um, And it's, it's hard to think of anyone who's had their hand in so many different platforms, like even someone like Kanye, like he's got music and fashion. That's about it. He's not like doing all these other things. So what does that mean to have him in this space right now? And should we be comfortable with that? Like, it's great we have all this flourishing of black, like black excellence is what we like to call it. We have him, we have Issa Rae, we have SZA who makes a cameo in the video. We have Beyonce doing her performance at uh, Coachella. But then at the same time, we are living, like things are getting progressively worse. We have all of these uh, uh, news items happening about black people falling asleep in dorms and getting called, <laughs> had the police calling them, going to Starbucks, having the police called on them. Um, so it's like this weird uh, dichotomy between 
we're really at a point where there's so much great black stuff happening in art and in music and theater, but like at what cost? Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I, I see him kind of dealing with is in, in this video is kind of like at what cost to him as well. Like that, that section you're mentioning where they pull out the, the cell phones and he says like, this is a celly, this is a tool, you know? And it, and it, it there's, I've seen people kind of interpret that as like a reference to, you know, people using their cells to like capture police brutality and, and kind of manage the situation that way. I've also seen it as a direct reference to um, Stephen Clark, who was shot while holding his cell phone in California. Right. Which it could be interpreted. I mean, I'm, I imagine maybe there's probably a double meaning there. I mean, there's a lot of like both and two things at once in this. And then yeah. that goes into this thing where he's, you know, the the part after that is where he's dancing and it, like he, the kids are kind of going around him in a circle, like throwing money at him. And he has this, the, then he has this line where he's like, I got to plug in Oaxaca. I'm going to leave you like Blaca. And he's got his, his hand extended, like he's, you know, about to shoot somebody. And then the music just drops out and goes dead. And it's like, he's just kind of reconsidering, like I've been putting on this kind of, you know, thug pose for this video, but also like, I'm like a kid from, I'm like a Jehovah's Witness from the Atlanta suburbs. Like, what am I doing here? And then that goes into this whole recreation of the the car scene from the the black or white video and like michael jackson's a big like ah. teddy perkins of atlanta is like a huge yeah there's like the two there's like the mj in the basement or, or the attic and the one on the floor and he's not quite sure like which one is pulling him or like which he's going to be and it seems like he's just really i mean it's kind of a mess in a ways but he, he does feel <laughs> like he's just trying to deal with like everything at the same time and he's like what am i doing he, on the one hand, he's like, I can do anything. I'm going to be in this medium and that medium. But then he's also like, what am I in like any of these, you know, in any of these postures? Yeah, yeah. that moment in the middle where he stops and the music stops and he lights a joint and then the music kind of restarts to me is a really key moment in the video because it shows, for one thing, a breaking of character, right? It's a moment that he might be Donald Glover and not Childish Gambino. He might be sort of resting and gathering himself. And it also really evokes Atlanta and the kind of, you know, the... um well, all the weed smoking, but also just the 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 sense of this kind of blankness that trauma brings in its wake. Well, and then the shot after that, when he's on the top of the car, you've seen the cars before kind of getting, you know, in the sort of riot scenes after the the violence. But then there's this long pullback of him dancing on the roof of the car. And there's they're just empty. All the cars are empty. Their doors are open. Their hazards are flashing. I think there's, you see one woman like hiding, sitting on the. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Right. Is sitting on. The yeah. She's sitting car. on the hood. But other than that, it's like everybody else has been raptured or something like it's Oh, the, the man who was shot is back. He's he's there again in that shot. Although okay. he's not, I think he's sitting on his chair again, and he's wearing a bag on his and head. He's ha- he's got a bag that, on it's his. So hard to like keep track of like what's exactly in what. Yeah, part. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you can tell from this conversation that we've all watched this a lot. Aisha's written about it, and I assume yeah. read a lot about it, and none of us quite have a handle yet on what Glover is trying to do. Which I think is what makes it the fact that it kind of opens up these wounds and leaves them leaves them unsutured is what makes it worth returning to. Well, one of the things that's been happening that, of course, comes out of something like this is that it has become memefied for better. Actually, not for better, just all for worse. Um, <laughs> most people have pointed out that it's that's exactly the point is like what you're doing. It's exactly what Donald Glover is critiquing and turning it into a meme, um, especially certain moments uh, like the shoot there. I've seen the meme of him shooting the the black man and they're they're all used for clever things like this is uh this is blank and this is this like as if this is blank like, like the distracted boyfriend but with yes, murder it, exactly yes. like the distracted boyfriend <laughs> meme but with murder um which is not okay and then of course we have this white youtube star 
personality, who's also Canadian, apparently, um, who made her her version, the woman's version of This Is America. And it's not just, you know, a little acoustic. We all we often see there's like the the twee acoustic white person version of a hip hop song. And it's like, oh, look at this white person taking on, you know, uh Bitches ain't shit. But which they sent up on it, which they sent up on Atlanta. <laughs> which they yeah. sent up on Atlanta. But instead, her name is Nicole Arbor and she went full on. She didn't just sit in front of the camera. She recreated the video essentially in a similar looking parking lot with a bunch of women. Now granted there are women of different ethnicities and races there who pop up, but like it's her rapping, this white woman rapping. There's also tap dancing for some reason. Um and it's just really awful and is Everything like inserting her whiteness and as a woman, like, look, I get it. (laughs) Like, obviously, we have our own things to contend with, but like, this is not the time and that's not the thing to to do. Um, The the act of a, a white person doing that and I don't even think it was supposed to be a parody like I think she takes it seriously at she, one point she, she calls d- it like the woman said it right so it's not even like yeah, yeah the just the deconstruction of that is in it just kind of circles back to this whole idea of of white people taking black music and black images and using them for their own purposes and the fact that she's using it to make herself I'm not going to say she's making herself a victim by any means, because obviously women endure a lot of bullshit. Uh, We all do. But turning it and making it about her in this way that just feels so flattened and cynical and frankly just unnecessary um, is is exactly what Donald Glover and all of us uh, were critiquing. And I think that... I, I, I would love to, I wish I could see him watching that video. I would love to watch a YouTube video of him watching that video. <laughs> Donald Glover reaction video to yeah, YouTube of YouTube of YouTube. Yeah. yeah so. Ugh. Yeah. I, I tried. Aisha. I made it through 15 seconds of Nicole Arbor. And after that, I was too traumatized. I had to go smoke weed in a parking lot. Yeah. Let's not link to this on the show pages. Yeah. If you can find, if you can find, a, if you can find a way to watch it without uh, giving her the click or maybe like gather a large group of friends so they only get one view out of it. Or something it is um, if you want to just say, oh, no, for like 30 (laughs) seconds and then run away. It's yeah, I guess it's good for that. All right. So we won't send you there, but we will send you to Childish Gambino's video for This is America because I want to hear what our listeners have to say about it. So come on to Facebook.com slash Culture Fest to tell us what you thought. Aisha, thanks so much for coming in to talk Childish Gambino with us. Thank you. This week, Gia Tolentino published an essay in The New Yorker called The Promise of Vaping and the Rise of Jewel about how vaping tobacco has become trendy not just for adults who are trying to quit smoking, but for millennials who have not picked up the habit yet. To discuss vaping and the Jewel device and Jewel culture, we've brought in Slate's browbeat intern, Lena Wilson. Hi, Lena. Hi. So you are an occasional jeweler, which is part of why you've been brought in. You're also an actual millennial. So thank you for being a token representative of your, your generation. Yeah, you're so welcome. I did not think I would be um, vaping with my boss and one of my favorite <laughs> film critics today. But here we are. Every day is an adventure. Yeah. Ah, this internship is a dream come true. Um, so there's a lot to be said about the jewel. I think we should actually aim this at people like me who have no idea what the hell it is until they picked up this article. Um, so so maybe we can all come together and, and describe what the jewel is. It's, first of all, a device that was not designed as a, a, a fashionable teen consumer item, but as essentially a kind of harm reduction strategy for smoking adults, right? The idea is that it's an electronic device that will deliver 
the hit of nicotine without all the bad stuff that comes with it, including tar, carcinogens, I don't know, whatever is in the cigarette that's that's hot and burns. So although jewels do work by a heat principle, it's a much lower heat and it involves steam as well. So what you're inhaling is essentially sort of a cooled down version of the tobacco smoke that's also flavored, which of course this will come up in how it's marketed to teens, etc. Um, can you talk about your relationship to jeweling and how, how it began? And also maybe if, if there's a jeweling culture around you in any way, what it's like? Yeah, well, um, the main thing that Gia Tolentino's article taught me is that at age 23, I should be put out to pasture. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right, because she mentions an old 23-year-old. <laughs> yeah, doing it. apparently I'm ancient for even owning a jewel and very embarrassing. Um, but it's actually apropos because I came to jeweling through a friend's um, high school age sister. Um, who bought her one for Christmas. Um, and that was like their sisterly bonding was they started jeweling together. I wonder if they opened it in front of their parents somehow, I think Absolutely not. not. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing the family, that did not happen. Um, but this friend and I had started smoking together in college. Um, and I was like an occasional, like real cigarette smoker for a while, as you are wont to do when you want to be as artistic as possible in college. Um, and so... We had sort of started smoking together and stopped smoking together, and um, then we started jeweling together, and that was how I came to it. Well, so do you do it still with an idea that you're slowly winding down your addiction to smoking, or do you do it now for its own enjoyable properties and plan to keep doing it? So I was never addicted to smoking in the first place, actually. Um, I just sort of did it as like a social thing. Like I, I never got addicted to nicotine, and my mother actually tried tried to get addicted to nicotine um, in high school and was never able to. So I think I might have those lucky <laughs> genes. Um, so yeah, it's mostly always just been a social thing. But I like, I really agree with Tolentino in her article that smoking has a very particular aesthetic. Um, and you just don't get it from jeweling. I, I don't jewel very often um, because it's not as social. It's like very quick. Um, there's no, I don't know, I don't see the appeal of a jewel break the way one might of a smoke break. Right. And yet, but she also points out that to a person, every single young, I guess, under 23-year-old person that she interviewed about jeweling thought that cigarette smoking was a disgusting habit that they would never do. So, I mean, right. my reading of that was that the PSAs worked, you know, all the scary ads about how you're going to end up with, you know, breathing through a tracheotomy tube if you ever pick up a cigarette seem to have impressed this generation of kids enough that they, they are alienated by that habit. They think it's smelly and disgusting, but but they still are interested in, you know, not only the addiction hit of nicotine, but the culture of having this slightly under the table habit sort of vice that they all share. Right. But also like high school bathrooms were filling up with like cucumber vapor um, at all times, apparently. So um, there is, I guess, some sort of like ritualized habit to it. But I personally don't don't really get it. Right. Uh, right. A lot of my concerns are just practical. I mean, the main reason I, I do not smoke now, but I have you know been an extremely uh, casual, like regular smoker at, at various points in my life. And the you know one of the main reasons I started was right when I got out of college and I was working retail and you got an extra five minute break yep. uh, if you smoked. Um, and I, I'm concerned that, that the, kid, the jeweling kids of today will not have that uh, <laughs> opportunity if it's, it's too quick. I mean, it seems like there's a debate as well as to how endemic a problem this is. You know, I mean, there's there's 
Tolentino's article is pretty even-handed. I think, you know, she she delivers some numbers of how it is on the rise, but it remains a small subculture. Um, then there have been some more alarmist articles in popular media about the dueling epidemic taking over. And, you know, high school principals are sending out mass emails to parents saying, look for these little things that look like um, that look like flash drives, flash drives. Right. Yeah. Which is exactly what the capsules before us look like. You could easily pass those you know, past your parents, I think, without them them knowing that you were dueling. I think there's um, one school in her article that I mentioned that actually just banned flash drives. Yeah, on yeah. the whole. Yeah. <laughs> but then other articles have contested, you know, whether that scare is maybe too hysterical and, you know, that the numbers have maybe been overreported. I know there was a New York Times piece that reported that 24 percent of high schoolers vaped daily, and that turned out to be completely wrong. I mean, it was just a completely misreported statistic. It was actually, I think, that 24% of the kids, the 11% of kids who used Juul at all had used it, you know, every day in the past month or something like that. So um, I think there are some inflated numbers flying around. I'm just wondering between the two of you, I mean, especially maybe you, Sam, because you're a parent like me, does this seem at all like something, I mean, I would be I would be pretty upset if my kid was secretly doing any kind of addictive behavior behind my back. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would be upset too, just like my parents were upset when they caught me smoking weed. Um, I mean, it's, it is, you know, kids are going to kind of find something and this seems, you know, much less likely to make you, you know, crash your car or do something dumb, you know, so it, it's, uh, it seems, you know, not at all cool to me. My, my sort of initial read on vaping was that it sort of miraculously like kept all the bad aspects of cigarettes while removing anything cool um, from the equation. Um, but you know, it seems, you know, on the one hand, I mean, we're clearly, you know, I, there's no real way to kind of keep it from crossing the line. But at least the people who run the company, are, you know, their argument is this is a product designed for adults. This is a product that is going to help people you know, who are addicted to smoking get off it. And that seems like a very, very good thing. Um, and I'm sort of a little cautious of the, the moral panic of like what's happening to the children. Um, but it is also even I think by the the company's estimate, something that refines um, cigarettes, nicotine to its kind of most purest and therefore most addictive state. I mean, you basically get an entire pack of cigarettes in one pod of these things, which I think you can consume pretty quickly. And if that, that, there doesn't seem to really be any significant evidence beyond scattered anecdotes that juuling, you know, leads to people smoking. I mean, as you said, I mean, every everyone who asks some, you know, some kid who jewels like, what do you think about cigarettes? They're like, they're disgusting. Why would I do that? Um, but it does at least seem that they're, you know, going to get, you know, potentially people hooked on jeweling. And, um, you know, I mean, I have to have two cups of coffee to get out of the door in the morning. So I'm, I'm, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But it seems that in general, being addicted to anything is probably not great. So. Yeah. And it doesn't seem, I mean, I don't get the impression from Tolentino's interviews with people at the company that they're extremely devoted to trying to reduce the appeal of their product to kids. I mean, they're not out, you know, they're not going out there and, and making cartoon printed jewel holders and deliberately trying to drag kids in the way that, for example, you know, camel cigarettes created a cute camel to try to entice young smokers. I think they're trying to check off the boxes of saying, no, no harm reduction strategy for adults. But the fact is that these things come in sweet flavors, right? It's not that hard to get the devices on online or through sort of black markety type dealers, even if you're not 18. Is that how old you're supposed to be? Yeah. 21 In to buy them? states. Yeah. Um, I think 21. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not going to jump full on into the moral panic, but it didn't make me feel good about the company or about this general development in public health. 
Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, I think that there's biological addiction and then there's like behavioral addiction. Um, and I think that Tolentino outlines some uh, some things in her article that I would classify as like behavioral addiction, if not biological. Like, obviously, the addiction to nicotine is a real and concerning thing. But like she talks about her friend who figures out ways to vape like on the bus and stuff um, and like how to hide like your vaping behavior as best po- as possible. And like that's the stuff that concerns me is the like secretive behavioral aspect to it. I think there's a difference between sort of this social ritual and um, it becoming like so much a part of your life that you feel the need to hide it from the public, you know? Yeah. And even from your friends. And she was saying she interviews someone as well who says, you know, we all know the difference between people who vape together in this kind of ironic, fun way and take selfies and Instagram them and those who sneak off and do it secretly because they just need the hit of nicotine right and those ones those kids aren't the cool kids because yeah it's like scary i guess right i mean it does seem like one of the big concerns with this is that it's just such a very new thing and you have this you know potential influx of a lot of of people who's you know physically their bodies are young and and still developing and are therefore you know more vulnerable to certain things and there's just no long-term research on this thing because there's no long-term that's been around long enough right i mean i don't know i their addiction pathways are still very sensitive you know so whether or not they end up sucking on these weird flash drives for the rest of their life i mean that may be a, a, a fad that comes and goes but the idea that there's a substance out there that will make you feel better and bring you back to a state of equilibrium and you can kind of self-medicate for anxiety in that way, that seems like a kind of bad psychological habit to build for a teenager, no matter how soon you do or don't abandon the jewel. Social media also has been a huge um, kind of way to popularize it, right? That people yes. are, are taking vape pics and, and posting them to Instagram. That was something that hugely interested me about the article was the way in which like millennial nihilism is being performed vis-a-vis jewel and Instagram. Um, because, and that's interesting to me because I was sort of approached smoking as like, this makes me a grittier human being and like a better artist because I have like the look. Um, there's this John Waters quote that's really great. That's like, um, the modern like youth crime now is hacking and there's no outfit for that. Like what's the outfit for hacking? Um, and I feel that way about Jewel kind of, I'm like, I don't really get What's the look for Jewel? But I guess the look is like total nonsense, surrealist memes posted to Instagram with like the tears emoji. Right. I I did a little search for it on Instagram and I came up with what was somehow like a This Is America meme that was also about Avengers Infinity War and yet also involved jeweling. Whoa. Uh, Yes. So that's (laughs) it, it all comes together. That person needs to be a guest on this week's show. I was going to say that's a Gabfest episode right there. Well, I think there's nothing left to do now but pop open the packs and do some jeweling. But that's going to be our Slate Plus segment. So, uh, Lena, will you stick around and jewel with us? I sure will. All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming in to discuss this this weird device. And now let's begin the rest of our addictive lives. All right. Well, we've reached the segment of our show where we endorse our favorite cultural product or experience or item that we came across this week. And uh, Lena is going to join us for endorsements as our third. Let's start with you, Sam. What have you got? Um, this is the, this year, as I think Slate readers know, is the 25th anniversary of Angels in America, um, which is a, in, a revival production on Broadway. But I'm going to endorse um, two other uh, theater productions that are 
directed by alumni of the original production, uh, one by George C. Wolfe and one by Joe Mantello, uh, who played Lewis originally. Um, and they are three tall women at the Golden Theater and the Iceman Cometh at the Bernard B. Jacobs Theater. They're right next door to each other on West 45th. Um, they're both, I think, getting a lot of, of just attention for the, their uh, lead performances, uh, particularly Denzel Washington in The Iceman Cometh, um, also David Morse. Has he been Tony nominated? Yes, yes, he has. And then um, and Three Tall Women, which has uh, Glenda Jackson, which in her first uh, theater role in 22 years after she took a break to, you know, be in Parliament. Um, and Laurie Metcalf and also Alison Pill. Um, and they are all kind of, you know, staggeringly acted. I, I kind of wondered after seeing the movie that he did of Fences a few years ago if Denzel Washington was kind of really saving his best stuff for the theater at this point because most of his movies recently have not been so great. And after having seen this this production, I think that that was correct. I mean, he's just kind of, you know, staggering in it. This is a play that a lot of people saw a few years ago when Nathan Lane played the, the kind of lead role of, of Hickey. And that was a really acclaimed performance as well. But um, Denzel just brings a, an incredible kind of energy to it. I've seen people um, compare him to kind of a revival preacher, the way he comes into this bar full of these habitual lowlifes and starts preaching this new kind of gospel of, of peace. But I, there's something really kind of intriguingly you know, satanic about the way that he is kind of tr- kind of throwing people off their guard and really just unsettling them and not actually leading anybody towards a, a better life. Um, I saw it kind of when the first or second week of previews and there's a moment uh, he's a long monologue in the fourth act, which he delivers just sitting in a chair facing the audience. And there was a moment where he just kind of got lost in it and called for a line, which actually turned out to be not even his line, just a point in the monologue where someone else interrupts him. Um, and even that kind of was kind of staggering and somehow in character and didn't disrupt it. Um, and what I like about both of these productions as well is that they're just they're really well thought out you know, all across the board. I mean, they both have the, their single set plays, but they do really interesting things with those sets that I actually feel like it would be a spoiler to describe too much in, in detail, which hopefully that is intriguing enough for people. Um, but they, I highly recommend a trip to New York to see either of them. All right, Lena, what have you got? Yeah, um, so the This Is America craze, uh, which I am totally subscribing to, I watch it like several times a day just because I find more every time I do, um, has got me really interested in Hiro Murai's um, music video filmography. Um, so I've been going through some of the stuff that he did before Atlanta, um, and I'm particularly infatuated with uh, his music video for St. Vincent's Cheerleader, um, which is from, I think, like 2013. Uh, don't quote me on that. But um, it's just the same sort of crazy, grainy surrealism, um, which is definitely his M.O., Um, but with Annie Clark. So um, I'm sold 100% on that. Um, I've also totally gone down a rabbit hole of Childish Gambino's entire discography, um, which my first sort of introductions to were from my brothers who just wanted to listen to his sort of like edgy boy rap with Camp, um, which was his first studio album. Um, And he'd like like drops gay slurs and like says a lot of misogynistic stuff in that album. Um, and it's really cool to see his evolution as an artist and I hope a person um, from that to um, his album Because of the Internet, which I like a lot, and the most recent um, Awaken My Love, which I um, played nonstop when it came out in 
late 2016. Um, so it, it's just been cool to sort of map his career in that way. And Aisha's article on the links between Atlanta and This Is America just like totally brought that all together for me. So just been in the Donald Glover, Hiro Mirai whirlpool. Yeah, interestingly. Yeah, we didn't talk much about his musical evolution with Aisha when we had her on. We were just talking about the specific video, but it is fascinating the way she talks about essentially that within the black community, he was taken very unseriously for the first five years of his musical career, that he was kind of a novelty act, an actor who was rapping not very well. And the fact that he's kind of slowly earned the cred to release something like this video is kind of impressive. That is a great endorsement. Also, Hiro Murai, I agree, is a really interesting director, and I'd be keen to see anything that he's done in the past. Um, Okay, so my endorsement this week is a a poem, and it's a poem with a a story behind it um, related to an article that appeared in The Atlantic by Megan Garber. It's an article about um, the Me Too story of David Foster Wallace's life, which is a well-known one. It's not that it's, you know, been revealed in this recent spate of stories, but it's something that's been in his biographies and stories about his life forever, which is that there was a period when he had a relationship with the writer Mary Carr, and uh, and after that, after the relationship ended, it was a pretty short one, I think, he basically stalked her. And, um, you know, there were all kinds of violent incidents between them that she's written about, that she's given interviews about, that his biographer has reported about, and did all kinds of uh, harmful stalkery things, which are very sad to read about, both from the point of view of Carr's life and, and Wallace's life and how it ended as well. But about four years after David Foster Wallace's suicide, so in 2013, I believe, Mary Carr wrote a poem to him that uh, that is absolutely beautiful and incredible. And it's the poem that I'm endorsing, although reading the background of this story will help you to love the poem even more. Um, one thing that Megan Garber mentions in this this piece is, is that David Foster Wallace's writerly reputation has sort of far eclipsed Mary Carr's. And people tell this story always as if she was a some sort of a side, you know, that she's so, sort of the, the background against which the story of the male genius unfolds. To me, personally, I mean, I've read a lot of David Foster Wallace's nonfiction, not very much of his fiction, but Mary Carr is a really important writer to me and always has been. I absolutely love her her three memoirs. So it's really sort of a, a, a memoir project that's, that's three books long. It's The Liar's Club, Cherry, and Lit, all incredible, incredible books. And then later in life, she turned to writing poetry, and uh, and she writes incredible poetry. So this poem that she writes to Wallace is just is something that I want to send readers to, in part because of how generous of spirit it is. I mean, it's a it's an angry poem in some ways, but it's also a loving and sad poem, and uh, and is really a poem to to all suicides, not only to David Foster Wallace, but sort of a message to be sent to someone who's who's ended their life and how that makes you feel in in the wake of it. And even though they hadn't been in touch in decades, it's really obvious that his death and his life meant a lot to her. So it's a fantastic poem by Mary Carr. It's called Suicide's Note. We'll put a link to it on the show page, along with the Megan Garber story from The Atlantic that, that gives the backstory. Okay, Sam and Lena, thanks for coming in and bringing this this all together. When Julia got sick and bowed out and Steve wasn't here, we sort of had to scramble to put a show together, but I think it was it was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they say hopped up on nicotine. Yes, seriously. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And listeners, you will find links to some of the things we talked about on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest, or you can email us at culturefest at slate.com, or drop us a note at Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. For Sam Adams and Lena Wilson, I'm Dana Stevens, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.